All right, good morning. <laughs> I just uh, I chuckle. At, uh, if, if, you're, if you're new with us, my name is Chris, one of the pastors here, and um, we, uh, we make it a practice to just go through, the, go through the Bible verse by verse and just deal with whatever is there. Um, I don't think this is one of those passages that most people in churches would just pick up and go like, let's study this one this morning. Um, so um, I chuckle because that's 1 Corinthians. I mean, 1 Corinthians, just, just wait till next week. I mean, today is the Jerry Springer show, and then next Sunday is like Judge Judy show. So, I mean, it's, it, it, it gets, if you've not read this book before, it's crazy. All right, so, um, so this morning, uh, we're going to tackle the subject of church discipline. Um, and so let me, let me pray for us as, uh, and pray for myself here as uh, we get started. God, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word. We, uh, we embrace as a church that every, every word in this book is inspired by you. It is given to us for reproof and for correction, for training in righteousness. God, that we may be equipped, that we may be sent out, that, God, we may be um, healthy and growing and loving you more and seeing other people to come to know you. Um, so, Lord, this passage is important, and it is uh, one we need to tackle, we need to look at, and I pray, God, that you would guide us, uh, God, as we study and learn together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, it's, uh, it is good to be with you. Um, I have, um, this sermon was originally prepared uh, uh, two weeks, three weeks ago now, I guess, um, and I was unable to be here uh, that morning um, with my daughter in the hospital. And so, again, I know I mentioned this last Sunday, but I do thank Justin for stepping in. That Sunday morning, he had about four hours to prepare uh, to, uh, to present, and so uh, I heard he did an awesome job. I actually listened to that, too. He did a great job, so I'm very happy for that. So we're picking back up here, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, again, the subject this morning is the subject of church discipline. And for some, when I, <laughs> when I give that subject, that's about as enjoyable maybe as watching uh, paint dry or watching your phone download the latest iOS update, okay? But I assure you, if you are a Christian, that this subject is vitally important to understand, and it's also essential for us as a church to practice. Um, we, we find that, uh, that, that for you who don't know Christ, uh, my hope and my prayer is that you will witness the love of God in this subject. Yes, discipline and love, okay, can and should be connected to each other, as we saw in the previous chapter, in chapter 4. They do work out, so just follow me. Don't tune me out here at the very beginning off the subject matter. Let's just work through it together and see what God has to say. So the, the topic of discipline is not something our culture likes very much. We have a, we have a certain aversion uh, to discipline, though we are comfortable with the idea of self-discipline as a culture, right? We, we, we like that, where we bring ourselves in, in line, right, with a certain standard in order to reach a certain goal, say something like weight loss or earning a degree, like we're very much about self-discipline, but we don't want the idea, we're very uncomfortable with the idea of being disciplined, all right, by someone or something outside of ourselves. We have this uh, what the Bible would call uh, sin. We have this simple bent towards wanting to be kind of the captain of our, of our own soul, not wanting anyone to tell us what to do. In essence, we really haven't exceeded or gone beyond the toddler stage in our, in our kind of maturity level, right? But we intuitively know that we do need certain rules. We do. We need certain structures. No matter what your belief is this morning or where you're coming from this morning and your understanding of God and the Bible and all of that, we would agree that there are certain disciplines necessary, Right? There are certain boundaries, um, there are clear boundaries be, that we need to understand, right? clear boundaries between those who graduate institutions by submitting to the discipline and those who don't. If you graduated medical school and you put in all the hours of residency, 
You'd be upset if someone just signed up for one class and they quit and they got the same degree, right? You'd be upset at that. You'd say, you know, they need to submit to the discipline, right? They need to go through the course. They need to go through the residency. They need to put in the work and submit to that in order to have that degree and be called a doctor. You would also say that you'd want the doctor that actually did submit under the discipline to operate on you and not the other one. Same goes for places in the, in the workplace, in politics, in the courtroom, even in the church. And so we, we, need, we need good discipline. We need good rules. We need good structure. And we need someone to lovingly like hold us to them. And what we find in the culture in Corinth, which is where this kind of city, which is existing today, by the way, in Greece, this ancient uh, 2,000 years ago culture in, in Corinth was uh, just as adverse to discipline and structure as we are as a culture. They didn't want any restrictions on certain subjects. Some were okay, but others they wanted off limits. Uh, they didn't want any restrictions on things like sexuality, worship, or how they use their money. Right? We want to be able to do whatever we want with those things. Uh, the result was that for the culture, sexual morality, idolatry, and greed were flowing through the streets of Corinth and were kind of streaming into the local church. As a matter of fact, these, these three kind of vices uh, which Paul will address in the next few chapters, and we'll deal with each of those in the next couple of weeks, uh, were kind of the, really the cracks of the foundation. If you study history, were kind of cracks in the foundation of the Roman Empire, which eventually caused it to crumble and fall. So let's just consider the one subject here that's brought up today uh, of sexual morality. There was no, no discipline, no rules, really, in the area of sexuality, but everyone in, the, in this culture of Corinth kind of did like in the Bible, there's a book called Judges where it says everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and that's pretty much what they did in this subject. As a result, this caused all kinds of gender confusion, massive sexual perversions, and broken homes. Matter of fact, we talked about this when we first started the series, but let me remind you about the city for a second. The most dominant structure in this ancient city was a massive building that was on a hill kind of looming over the downtown area of Corinth. It was a temple. It wasn't just any temple. It was a temple that employed, literally employed, over 1,000 prostitutes for their, quote, worship. Corinthians had sex before marriage. The Corinthians had sex with others while married, they had homosexuality, they had prostitution, and just about anything that happens in our culture today was happening then repeatedly and continually in the city of Corinth. Sometimes you read the Bible, you think like, man, it's so ancient and so like non-applicable, and these guys have no idea when they were writing what it's like to live in our culture. Yes, they do. Okay. Yes, they do. We can imagine back then... If it was modern times, you know, if, if it was modern times in Corinth, they would have their alternative lifestyle parades back then and their bumper stickers on the back of their camels with rainbows spray painted on the side or something. That's what they would have, right? It'd be very similar today. That was supposed to be funny. All right. Um, sexual morality was so common in Corinth, uh, which is this is interesting. Um, they actually had a coin, they coined a term. Like if you were considered what they would call a sexual pervert, which took a lot to get that title in ancient Rome, okay? But to get that title in any part of ancient Rome, wherever you live, they would call you, oh, that, that guy, he, that girl, she's a Corinthian. You know, he's a Corinthian. That's, that, they're crazy. You know, they're really out there. That's what they would call them. That's what it was like to live in the city. The result, um, which happened in the city, was sexually transmitted diseases became very widespread. You can imagine that. Uh, they didn't have medical technology to deal with them. Um, so they would literally build shrines, okay? They would build little statues built in the form of genitalia. I'm just being graphic with you, but if you go do anything with history and you look back and see the architecture and see the things they built, they built these kind of things. They would build them, 
And people would actually bow down to these statues and worship them in hopes of being healed from their venereal diseases. This is what they did. And yet, in the middle of this city, in the middle of this culture, God planted a church. And people came to know Christ. And people were getting saved. And people were getting transformed. And they were growing. Listen to what Paul will say in the next chapter, in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, do not be deceived. Not a sexually immoral. Now he's going to list all the things that were going on in Corinth. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, such important, so important here, right? But such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the Christians in Corinth, are, they're fairly new believers. And they have a lot of baggage with them, right? They, they brought a lot of baggage in, a lot of things from their story, their past, as they come into the church together. And just like every Christian today, they struggled with temptation to sin. They struggled with being tempted to go back to their old ways of life that was always around them in the city of Corinth. And because Jesus loves us, and because he knows us, he created a church, right? You ever think about that? Like, why did he create a church? Like, why did we have this thing? Because it was there to help protect us. It was there to help hold us accountable to each other and, and help us to grow closer to one another. And he installed this, not just the church, but this process called church discipline to help us. It's a way of, that we as Christians really help each other fight against sin that is always kind of pressing up against us as we live out in the world. We can easily drift, grow dull and stubborn. Now, church discipline as a subject is not as negative as it may sound. Right? It kind of sounds, oh, wow, it's tough, church discipline. And it's not as determinative as it might sound as well. What I mean by that is it's not necessarily meant to be a big, dramatic event that takes place as much as it is to be an ongoing practice that each of us is to be involved with in each other's life. Jesus outlines this in Matthew 18. He actually laid this out for us. He says this in Matthew 18, starting verse 15, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, right? So go deal with it between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he, go, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. First step, as Jesus lays out here, is a kind of the one-on-one discipleship confrontation. It's each of us um, working through things and helping each other through the temptations of sin. It's something we should be happening all the time. So we should always be involved in the first step of church discipline. We're, we should love each other enough to help each other through our struggles. The second step is when we find that someone in the church has just kind of grown stubborn. Maybe they're stuck um, in, the, in sin and they don't want to repent. And so you bring a, another person along or maybe two other people along to help help bring this person to repentance, right? To talk to them. The third step is when they're still unrepentant after that and refusing to follow Jesus in some particular area. And they're brought before the kind of the whole church to, to ask the church family to everyone now pursue him. Everyone try to, try to bring this person to repentance. The final step is where after a long process of pleading and praying, that person who is unrepentant is to be removed from the church. The final step is what we see happening in this text in 1 Corinthians 5. 
And unfortunately, what we have is that the church in Corinth had either stopped practicing this, this church discipline practice or, and probably more likely, had decided to turn a blind eye to this one particular situation. And so let's look at church discipline as a subject today. We're going to see that it's necessary, it's loving, it's protective, and it's internal. Okay, we'll look at each one of those. Number one, church discipline is necessary. Verse one says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, the Corinthians had been taught in the area of sexual sexuality, right, through the scriptures. Paul had taught them on this. There were rules that God had laid out for his followers because he loves us, and he does give us rules because he loves us. And so in the area of sexuality, the Bible teaches that a man and a woman, I know, crazy idea, but a man and a woman get married. And then they are together intimately. That's it. That, that, that is the, the extent of sexuality. Anything outside of that sexually is unbiblical. It's what the Bible calls sin. One man, one woman, one lifetime of intimacy. That's what the Bible teaches. And they understood that. That's what was, had been taught. And yet Paul says that there is this sexual morality going on. What is that? It's actually one word in the original language. So the New Testament, which we're reading here, is the latter half of this book. The first half is Old Testament. First half is New. First half was written in original language Hebrew. Second half was written in original language Greek. And the original language is one word in Greek, and it actually sounds like an English word we use today. And the Greek word was this, pornea. Okay, it may sound like something you know, pornography. It's where the word comes from. It's from an ancient Greek word, which means sexual morality. And Paul says that this pornea was running rampant in the church and being left unchecked. And it's an interesting word because Paul uses it as a kind of a junk drawer term, referred to any kind of sexual deviancy, right? It's just a, it's a catch-all kind of word. It encompasses all kinds of sexual morality, and it's, it's good. I mean, this is why Paul uses it, because people are sneaky, right? Paul used it because if, if he just listed all the forbidden actions of sexual morality, someone, somewhere, would come up with some kind of exceptional loophole, right? This, again, we haven't really advanced very much beyond being junior high kids, right? So this is, this is why he uses the words, a very general term. And he goes on to tell us that there is one specific sexual sin that is happening in the church, and it's a form of incest. I bet you got up this morning thinking, really? This is what we're going to talk about this morning? Um, a man, a member of the church who is nameless, because everyone knows who he is, his name doesn't need to be brought up, it says, has his father's wife. Presumably, she is not a member because she is not addressed at all in the passage. So the language uh, of the, the original language here has sexual overtones to it, and it also indicates an ongoing sexual relationship. This wasn't a one-night stand type of thing. This is something that's been going on for a while, maybe a year, two years, three years, we have no idea, but it's been going on a while. And it, it was a problem, right? You say, was it, well, was it his, what is this, like his mom or was it his stepmom, right? Yeah. I don't know if you're asking that question, but we're, we're not sure, right? We're not sure. Probably it's his stepmom based on the language, but I do know if there's a woman you call mom, all right, and you take her to the prom, you've crossed the line, right? That's, that's a bad thing. That's like Kentucky scary. Um, <laughs> um, the, I, I grew up in Virginia. We would say that's West Virginia scary. So I'm just, it's, it's, it's fair. So th- these days, if you did something like this, right, that would, that would end up, and I told you earlier, this would end up on the Jerry Springer show, right? This is where it would end up. But it wouldn't necessarily put you in jail per se. But in Roman culture, it was against the law. 
Not necessarily because it was of its deviation, but because of the harmful social and obviously biological effects it would have on a family. The Romans, which were interesting, would tolerate just about any kind of sexuality, right? They would, they would tolerate fornication, which was sin, which sex before marriage. They'd, they'd tolerate adultery, which is sex with someone else after you're married, uh, prostitution. Uh, we looked at it in, um, before in the study of Titus. They tolerated pederasty, which was uh, awful, which was like basically an older man with a younger man or younger or even teenage boy. I mean, they would tolerate about anything in the world, but they considered this one, this subject, um, an outrage, punishable actually by deportation, they would deport them to an island like Crete, right? They would, just, they, would, they would send them all to Crete, which is kind of a, go back and read Crete and you start understanding why Paul says the Cretans are just, you know, evil, evil um, immoral people, evil BCX uses a phrase in Titus 1. It gives you a whole new perspective on, wow, that was a tough church plant there in, on Crete. And yet while all of this was going on, and here's the issue, the Corinthian church simply stood idly by. They, they didn't say anything. It was like they would get coffee in the lobby in church on Sunday morning and be like, you know, hey, uh, you know, hey, Jerry, um, and uh, hey, Jerry's mom, how's it going? You know, and, and, and see you next week. I mean, it was, just like they, it was like they didn't even have the conversation. They just let it go. And the language here that Paul says, is it actually happening, is really a modern way of saying, are you serious? Is this really, are, are you, you're joking, right? That, that's his language of what he's saying. And it says, being reported is the idea of being universally reported. In other words, this is something that is, being, is known throughout the whole city of Corinth. They all know that in that church over there, that one church, right? There was only one church in the city of Corinth. And in that church, they're doing that kind of thing. And notice that the focus of the text is not on the, the case of sexual immorality itself, but really on the church's lack of response to it. Sexual immorality is in the background. The church's lack of response is in the foreground. They are tolerating, not even what unbelievers in their community would tolerate. And the most shocking thing is that starting in chapter 7, we find that this letter Paul wrote, he's writing in response to a bunch of questions that they had asked him, right? So chapter 7, is he's going to start listing off, hey, you guys asked this question, let me answer that for you. Apparently, this didn't come up as a question. They, they didn't even consider going like, hey, we got this guy in our church, and he's with his mom, and um, we... Um, we don't, what do we do with it? I mean, they didn't even ask. They just assumed that everything was okay and didn't want to talk about it. Didn't even, didn't even concern them. So Paul says in verse 2, and you are arrogant. Aren't you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed among, from among you. Once again, in the book of Corinthians, we see that arrogance is at the root of the problems in the church. They're being puffed up, which is causing all these divisions, but it's also causing a sense of callousness in how they viewed sin and the whole concept of church discipline. They felt They didn't need to practice it. And most likely, based on the previous chapters and what we understand about Corinth so far, is that they probably don't want to confront this guy because he he probably either either he has deep pockets, which is probably the case, right? He makes a lot of money, or he he has a high social status in the city of Corinth. And so they they don't want to, like, you know, ruffle the feathers a little bit here and, hey, we need the money, and so we don't want to, we'll just let this go. You see what's happening? They're kind of letting this stuff go because this may be a prominent figure Within, within the community. And yet Paul calls them to mourn for this guy. The word literally means to weep for the dead. It's the idea of actually caring, right? Actually considering, actually giving a rip about the guy. Actually, do you care about the guy or not? It's like Paul's saying, like, why, you should be mourning for him. Like, you should actually care enough to talk to him about this at the very least. And, and, um, and you should care enough about the church. You should care enough about the lost and about Jesus. So he calls them to practice church discipline, the last step. 
to remove the guy from the church because he's unrepentant. It's been going on for a while. And he'll repeat this, by the way, six times in this passage in case they missed it. So we understand that while the church is to be a hospital for sinners, and while there should always be sufficient grace for anyone struggling with sin, those who insist upon living as a law unto themselves, who harden their hearts, who are unrepentant, need to be removed, right, through the process of church discipline with a view to repentance and restoration. Well, you may say, but, uh, but Chris, we, we should be, you know, we, really should, we should be tolerant of all actions and choices of people, especially of this couple. I mean, what if, they're, what if they're committed to each other? What if they're faithful to each other? You know, and again, that's great if you want to parrot your, your beliefs from, uh, uh, your cultural beliefs from, uh, from bumper stickers. But notice Jesus, uh, sorry, Paul doesn't ask anything about their level of commitment or whether they're being faithful to each other, right? That's not the issue at all. Whether or not they're in a long-term committed relationship is besides the point. Faithfulness demonstrated in an otherwise prohibited relationship does not make it less damaging and less sinful, right? That's not the issue. That's sometimes we bring up in our culture. Well, faithfulness, you know, they're faithful, that's okay. So you, you understand tolerance is not always good. We love to, I mean, tolerance is like the buzzword in our culture, right? Understand when you tolerate that which God does not tolerate, you are declaring someone to be evil here in this, in this process, right? You know who you're declaring to be evil is God. He's evil. You know, you say, well, if you love me, you would accept me in this way. You would, meaning you would, you would allow me to live and make the choices I want to make. You know, if we loved you, we would compel you towards change, obedience, and holiness, and, and toward a loving God. Others, a lot of times, and even if they're not very familiar with the church at all, they try to be biblical about this, right? They throw the Bible at you, and they quote Jesus in Matthew 7, right? Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you not be judged. That's like the American non-Christian life verse, right? Um, hey, buddy, thou shalt not judge. And they always go King James on you, too. They don't even know anything about the Bible, but they'll throw out the King James version on this one. And it's amazing in using it because they're, in doing it, they're judging you, which is kind of funny, right? Hey I, hey, I think that's wrong. Hey, man, thou shalt not judge, right? Um, you're, you're judging my judging here, right? That's a yellow card, red card, something needs to go. And so we need to find, what does Jesus mean when he says, thou shalt not judge here, or you judge not that you not be judged? What does he mean? The word judge can mean different things. One is that it can mean to evaluate or criticize or discern that something is good or something is bad, okay? So as Jesus saying, we should never make judgments, that we should be passive, non-confrontive, and not practice anything like church discipline, for example. Well, no one really believes this, okay? We all believe that some judgment some evaluation, some intolerance, uh, some critique is to take place, right? We all believe this. That's why you'd be very bummed if you went home today and you found out that someone broke into your house and they took all of your stuff and you come in, they pull a gun on you and you call 911 and the dispatcher said to you, hey man, didn't you read Matthew 7? Thou shalt not judge. We're not going to send anybody because that would be judgmental. But you even say that. You'd say, no, you need to send the cops with guns, send the dogs, send the, send the SWAT team, the helicopters, you know, Air Force One, send something to take these guys, take them to the judge and get them judged, right? They need to be judged. No tolerance in this one. I'm going to be intolerant. They need to go to jail, right? That's what you would say. So we all would agree that there's a level of intolerance that needs to take place in that way. So none of us believe that judgment is always bad or that tolerance is always good. So what kind of judgment is Jesus saying not to do? The context that Jesus is speaking to is all about hypocrisy. Jesus goes on to talk about a guy, kind of funny story actually, uh, if you've never read this before. He goes on to talk about a guy who has a two by four in his eye, 
trying to confront a guy who's got sawdust in his eye, right? And so Jesus basically says, hey, man, you know what? You need to deal with the two-by-four that's in your eye. And when you deal with that, then, he, he says in the text, go and help your brother who's got sawdust in his eye. Why don't you go help him get that out? But let's deal with that two-by-four first kind of idea. So he's not saying, hey, don't confront anybody. Don't ever make any judgments. Don't practice things like church discipline. Rather, he's saying don't do it in hypocrisy, right? Don't go beyond, he was saying in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, don't, be, don't go beyond what is written. So it is. Church discipline is necessary. It's something we must practice. Otherwise, we're calling God unholy and evil for telling us to do it. And if the subject of church discipline troubled the, the Corinthian church back 2,000 years ago, it certainly troubles American churches today. The practice of church discipline varies widely from a complete absence and ignorance of the concept to a terrible abuse of the, of the, the issue, right? And so, so many our churches are so large, maybe so, so loosely associated, people can live however they want without anyone ever knowing who its members are, or much less how, how they're doing. Many churches are fearful of church discipline because it might lead to litigation. Others find this distasteful because exercising church discipline is not only difficult, but ah, it just makes me look like I'm judgmental, right? But we need to follow what Jesus tells us to do regardless of how we might feel or how the culture might perceive us. We obey God rather than men. And let me say this to you very practically. If you ever leave Parkside Bible Church, right, you go somewhere else, you move somewhere else, and you're looking for a church, please, Look into and examine, do they practice church discipline? should be one of the very first things you look up. And how do they do it, too? You want to go through that. You don't want a church that abuses it, but you also don't want a church that doesn't do it. Because a church that doesn't do it doesn't love you. They don't care enough about you. They allow you just to go off and live however you want and, and walk away, right? They, you want a church that actually cares about you enough to actually go, okay, we're going we're gonna to hold each other accountable to this, right? We're going to follow Jesus together, and that's super important. Number two, church discipline is loving. It's loving. Now, verse 4 says that when you're assembled, he talks about here, you're delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I know it sounds strange to talk about church discipline and love in the same sentence, but Jesus commanded us to practice this for our own good. All right, we talked about last time we were together how Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And so when there's things in the Bible like when Jesus says, hey, we talked about last week and last two weeks, give sacrificially. The reason he tells us to do that is because he understands that greediness is going to destroy us. He understands that hoarding all your money to yourself and not giving it some, some away is destructive to your own soul. So he says, hey, give, right? There's a reason the command is there. The reason he says, you know, stay faithful to your spouse is because he understands that adultery is going to destroy that family and destroy the children in that family. Right? You, need to, you need to stay together and you stay faithful to each other. It's for your own good, Right? So notice here that the ultimate goal of all of this is that this man's spirit, it says, may be saved in the day of the Lord. When there is habitual, unrepentant sin, there is always a great danger that the reality of our faith is actually suspect. See, the, the way we live our life, when we claim to know Christ, gives evidence that we are Christians or evidence that we are not. This man in this church, who is apparently a member of this church, is in danger of proving what John would say in 1 John 2, that they went out from us because they were never of us, right? Church discipline is ultimately an act of love because it shows concern for the one thing that really ultimately matters in life, your soul. It's not that this guy's in danger of losing his salvation. Understand me on that one. That's not what I'm saying. 
but that he may not have ever had it to begin with. Maybe he was fooling himself. Maybe he was trying to fool others. Maybe he was in the church to kind of make some kind of advantage in some form or fashion. I don't know. But church discipline, the process helps get to the bottom of the authenticity of our faith. Do we genuinely love Jesus or not? Are we willing? Because a, a Christian is not someone who is sinless. Really, there's only two types of people in the world, right? It's not those who sin and those who don't, okay? There is those who are repentant and those who are unrepentant sinners, right? That's what we find in two different groups in the world. The church is full of people who are repentant sinners, right? They are, they are moving towards Jesus, becoming more like Jesus. They're struggling with sin, but they're repenting of sin. That's what's happening. This guy is not doing that. You say, so what is this delivering over to Satan stuff? I mean, that sounds pretty mean, right? What's going on with that language? The idea is that in removing this unrepentant man from the church, they are putting him back into the world, in the world system, which Ephesians 2 tells us is run by Satan himself. And we know, and we talked about this, right, being, a, being apart, um, being alone apart from the church, if he indeed is a believer, is a situation that Satan kind of uh, targets, right? First Peter 5 tells us he's like a roaring lion seeking someone individually to devour. And so he's looking for the person in isolation, being part of the life of the church provides protection, right? It's like a herd against the prey. You see National Geographic shows, right? The, the ones in the middle of the pack are the safest. The ones on the outskirts who kind of go off by themselves, they're toast, right? That's not a good idea. You want to stay in the body. You want to stay close to the herd, as it were. This is removing them outside, putting them, isolating them out. So they are to send them out of the herd in hopes that it will rock his world, break his perceived self-sufficiency, and open his eyes to the value of Jesus and bring repentance. The hope is that his desire for sin, his stubbornness, will be destroyed. If the church has allowed him to continue, which they were doing, it actually is unloving for him, right? It's not to care for his soul. It's to allow him to live a self-delusional, self-condemning life. And the language is strong. It is strong because sin is not something to play around with, guys. That's why it's strong. So when something gets to the point of discipline, we're not saying we don't think that what you're doing is such a good idea. We're saying, look, if, if, if you don't change, if you don't repent, we fear for your soul. Your, your confession of faith may not be actually genuine. And you understand that here's what the crazy thing is. You know what? They did it, and it worked. <laughs> there's another letter. This is called 1 Corinthians because there's another letter, 2 Corinthians, that follows this book. And if you read it, 2 Corinthians 2, 6-8, we find this. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Meaning, they put him out. They actually did follow through. Show, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or you may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. What's going on? This guy came back. He repented of what he was doing. Like, he, he left his mom, I guess you'd say. Like, he, he actually turned from his sin. And he came back to the church, and he asked forgiveness, and he, and he, he started pursuing Jesus. And the church... In St. Corinthians, they, they're like, we're not letting him back. And Paul has to write him and go like, it's okay, let him back in. Like, this is, all, this is why we do this, right? And it does work. Not all the time, but it does. I remember in L.A., if you guys know my story, I was church planner in Los Angeles in the Hollywood area for, for many years. And um, I had lots of stories I could share with you about this kind of stuff. But I had one gal, her name was Becky, which, uh, which one of our gals in our church brought to, to church one Sunday. Uh, met her on, on a set there out in L.A., and uh, Becky came in, and she was, um, she had her head was all shaved, she had piercings all over, and, and she came for a few weeks, right? She came a few weeks in church, and uh, after a few Sundays, she, she came up, and she goes, like, I like this, this whole Jesus thing. Like, she was trying to figure it out, you know, and she's like, I, I like what you're saying, and I like all that, and I've got some friends I would love to hear about this, but they won't, they won't ever come to church. Like, this, this is not, not their thing. 
would you be willing to come with me to talk to them? Yeah, sure, I'll do that. Let's go. And, uh, and so she began to explain. She's like, well, I have this, uh, I'm, I'm performing art next weekend um, at the LA Convention Center, and they'll all be there, and, and maybe you can meet them there. And I said, great, that'll be good. Probably should have done a little more investigation than what I was getting into. But um, it, I thought it was the LA Convention Center. It's not like a house in the dark alley somewhere. So I'm like, it can't be that bad. So I, I, I show up. It's the, um, it's the uh, Tattoo and Piercing exhibi- Exhibition at, uh, at uh, LA Convention Center. And I walk in. I grab two of my fellow like, pastors in training. It's like, hey, you got to come with me because I don't know if I want to be alone in this deal. I don't know what's going on. So I show up, and, and there's Becky. She's all excited. All of her friends are there, you know, and they're all like, hey, you're that pastor guy. Because she had tried to start. She's not even a believer yet, but she's trying to tell them about what she's learning. And I'm like, yeah. I was like, um, I'm here, man. I love Jesus. We want to talk. He's like, well, if you stay for the show, we have a show to put on here. When we're done with the show, if you'll stay for that, we'll talk. I said, oh, I'm game. Let's do it. So there's a curtain, you know, everything. And, um, and as, they were, um, as they were there and they were kind of uh, beginning to uh, get prepared, they kind of opened the curtain. And what I found out was what I was at was called a body suspension show. You don't want to Google that, by the way. Um, <laughs> if you know what that is, basically they take uh, giant fish hooks, like we're talking like shark hook kind of things, and put them into their backs and they hang suspended and they perform a show while being hung from these giant hooks. You can imagine, I'm like mouth open and I'm trying to play it cool and I'm like, what am I doing here? And um, this is where Jesus would go, I'm sure, this is where he would go, this is where he'd go, you gotta meet, gotta meet him where they are. And so, um, so I'm there, you know, they're at shows all over, you know, and they come up and they're kind of chuckling like, oh, you're still here. And I'm like, yep, I'm still here, almost vomited, but I'm okay, I'm still here. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and so they're like, all right, tell us about Jesus. I said, great, it was worth enduring that to, to tell you. So we kind of went through this whole thing and they all kind of chuckled, it was like a joke to them. And none of them came to Christ. But Becky did, right? Becky did. It was awesome. And Becky started coming to church, and she started being changed, and she'd come to Jesus, and she was growing. It was fantastic. I mean, it was awesome to see Becky coming to Christ. And, I mean, she'd come from a horrible background and been sexually abused and all kinds of stuff. And it was just really cool to see her grow. And a couple years go by, and she decides, "Uh, I'm going to go back. And she goes back to this group, and she goes back back into this lifestyle. And and, um, and so we, we kind of started pursuing her, and we, and we had other people in the church pursuing her, the ladies in the church and everything, and then I, I remember we had to bring it before the whole church, because she's like, I'm done with this, I'm out of here, I don't want to don't know Jesus anymore, and we're like, okay, and so everyone's kind of pursuing her, writing her letters and emails and all that stuff, and I remember riding down, downtown um, in, in uh, <laughs> I was with Phil, uh, Phil Deadness was, um, me and him were in the truck together, uh, Phil, I have so many stories I could tell you, but Phil later on died of a drug overdose and jumped out of his window, um, but Phil and I, Running down, riding down to, uh, to see Becky, and we were going down with Phil, and Phil and I sat down, and, and, and Phil was awesome, and he just shared Jesus with her, and, and, just, and she just broke down in tears, and she, she ended up coming back. You know, she came back to the church. She came back to faith. She came back to Christ, and she, and she repented and came back, right? It was, a great, it was a great story, but that was the process by, and she even said, like, the fact that everybody loved me enough to come after me was, was what brought me back, like, that you actually cared about me enough to, to do that. And that's the process. That's why we say church discipline is loving. It would be unloving to let people just go their way, to let people live in sin, destroy their lives, and be like, I'm okay with that because you understand your passivity is unloving, right? We have to be actively involved in each other's life. And that is what Paul is going after here as, as speaking about it being loving. Number three, church discipline is protective. All right, starting in verse six, Paul brings up this whole leaven thing. Paul brings up leaven here to show us that church discipline is meant to be protective. You say, protective of what? 
It's meant to be protective of the local church and protective of the gospel. While church discipline is loving to the person under discipline, it is always a way to, to look out for and protect the church. What is that? The people of God from taking sin lightly. Leaven was made back then by keeping back a piece of the previous week's dough, storing it, adding some juices to promote the process of fermentation, much like we would make sourdough today. This moldy dough could go bad and become a contaminant, and a a piece of bad leaven will will pass on the contaminant to the next batch and the next batch, batch and the next batch. The only way to break the chain of baking bacteria-laden bread was to ditch the whole batch and start over again, right? We'll start afresh. And that's exactly what Israel would do in the Old Testament. If you ever read about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's what they would do. They would, they would go and cleanse their house of all, all the, the, the leaven. They would clean the temple out of all leaven, and they would start over with a good batch to begin the process again. This means that this man's sin, okay, when he, when he gives us this kind of metaphor here, this man's sins brings greater harm than just simply being a bad example, or simply maybe generating bad publicity for the church, it likens his sin to toxin that will infect and ruin the whole church. So there's no such thing as private morality or private immorality in this case for church members. Uh, Unrepentant sin can't be just swept under the rug. What happens to me affects you, and what happens to you affects me, because we, as Paul will talk about later in 1 Corinthians, we're we're one body, right? If the arm is hurts or the knees hurt, the whole body kind of hurts, right? We're, we're all part of one family. And so for each of us, we must acknowledge that we have the potential to destroy our church if we are unrepentant and become proud and arrogant about it. So how does unrepentant sin and the church not caring make a difference in other members' lives? And here's how that works. If the church allows this behavior to continue, this unrepentant behavior to continue, it will spread among the congregation so that when individuals face temptation, whether whether like this or some other case, they will easily compromise because they'll say, well, it wasn't a big deal for that guy when he was unrepentant and it turned out okay for him. The church didn't seem to care about that, so I could do whatever I want, right? So for for the sake of every member of the church, we must take church discipline seriously. We We need to prevent... What uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, old German pastor who died during uh, World War II there, prevent what, what he called cheap grace from running rampant where people just say, you know, well, we love Jesus, but they deny him by the way they live, right? We, we can't have that. So he goes on to say, verse 8, therefore let us celebrate the festival. Okay, celebrate the festival. What does that mean? This, this is our New Testament practice of what was Passover in the Old Testament which Jesus celebrated, remember, the last night of his life. He told disciples to go prepare the Passover meal. And he instructed them on what is now called, we call, communion, or the Lord's Supper. You see this, we'll have practices a little bit later if you're new with us. It's how we remember the death of Jesus. So why does Paul bring up communion here? Why does he bring that up? It's basically, basically discipline in miniature form. It's intended, think about it, it's intended to provide many spurts of warning every single time a Christian takes the elements. We are to examine ourselves. We should ask ourselves every Sunday morning we take communion, right? Are we teachable? Are we correctable, right? Do we, are, do we have a stubborn spirit, a stubborn resolve that refuses to change, right? What, what's going on? How am I doing, right? That, it's, a, it's a time of self-examination. That's why at the end of our, when I'm done here in a few minutes, like we'll have a time, we'll be quiet, and you'll have a time to talk to God and kind of examine your heart, like am I, how am I doing? And so we, we see this. This is what it's for. Communion is a wake-up call every Sunday. We should consider if we have wronged someone, 
or if we've done everything we can to make things right, or do we just not even care about it, right? Jesus gave us this practice of church discipline to protect us as a family from taking sin lightly and thinking it's no big deal. Lastly, church discipline is internal, okay? So starting in verse 9, he speaks here about, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual moral people, not at all meaning the sexual moral of the world, okay? So to associate with means to enjoy close social relationships together, right? To mix it up, chop it up a little bit, right? To, to hang out, we would call in our culture or the church, one of their favorite words, you know, we like to use the word fellowship, right? Or my favorite Midwestern term, to visit to each other. My mother-in-law uses that word all the time. Oh, we're going to visit. I'm like, I'd never heard that before. I'm like, what does that mean to visit somebody? That means to like, you know, hang out and talk. I'm like, okay. So basically close to here to associate with is to visit someone. So Paul is saying that church discipline, this judgment idea is only though for those who are members, not for those who are not. Sadly, the church in Corinth began to separate themselves from sinners out in the world while allowing sin to kind of fester in their midst. Verse 12 says, for what, what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those inside the church you are to judge. God judges the outs- those outside. So we need to hear this because the tendency for those in the church, okay? And if you're, if you're new with us, you kind of know this, probably have this idea in your mind about the church anyway. The tendency for those in the church, I say church in large, I'm speaking like church in America as it were, is not to say the hard things to people inside because we're afraid of making things awkward. You know, we're like, ah, I don't really want to say anything. That would be socially awkward to do so. Instead, though, and here's the cowardly thing that we do, instead we're very vocal that what we want to condemn that it's happening out in the world, usually, by the way, behind a keyboard, which is very cowardly. Because it's easier, right? It's not personal, Right? It, it's, it's those people out there who are just really bad sinners. But we don't want to deal with stuff internally because that would make it awkward. And since we don't hang around them or see them on a regular basis, we feel the liberty to talk about how great of sinners people are out in the world. And honestly, again, it's just cowardly because we're not willing to, we're not willing to step up and actually and talk to each other about it. Paul does not intend for us to withdraw from the world and throw rocks at it, as it were, into our kind of godly ghetto, as it were. We are to be salt to the world, right? And salt is no good as a preservative if it's not around things that are decaying, right? We are to be light to the world, which does no good if we're not in the midst of darkness. So our job as Christians is to keep watch over each other, say the hard things if necessary, and turn together towards the world and bring the gospel to bear upon the world. We need to stop complaining about how bad it is out there and go out there with the gospel together, right? So you see why this church discipline is so important for a church that's on mission. It's vitally important. If we're going to be in the world, as Paul calls us to be, and we're going to associate out in the world, mix it up, chop it up, as it were, with unbelievers in the world, then that means we're going to face a lot of temptation. We need to know that the church has our back if we slip into sin, right? I mean, if we're going to be out there and we're going to be tempted, like, we need to know the church has got us. I told you a story before, and I love it. William Carey, known as a kind of father of modern missions, was a missionary to India back in the early 1800s. It was a a tough field, and before leaving for India, Kerry had his best friend named Andrew Fuller, who said, uh, he he told Andrew, he said, look, I will go down into the well of India. Like, I'll go down in there, but I need you to hold the ropes for me. I need you to hold the ropes for me. And that's what church discipline is. It's, a, it's holding ropes for each other. Like, hey, if you get, you get too far in there and you get stuck down there, I'm going to help pull you up, right? That's what it is. It's the process of helping each other as we're on mission out there to hold each other accountable and help each other as we face temptation out in the world. So Paul goes on to say, verse 11, 
I'm not as that, but now I'm writing to you not to associate anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual matter or greed, and he goes on to list the others, not even to eat with such a one. So Paul's not talking about avoiding Christians who are struggling with sin. Understand what I'm saying here, because if that's the case, we should just all avoid each other, okay? He's talking about people who call themselves Christians, who've joined the church and continually self-justify their sinful conduct and show no signs of being concerned that what they do is an offense to God. There, there's no repentance, no godly sorrow. The four steps have been followed, and they are now under church discipline. Okay? So we are not to associate, not even eat, it says, with these professing unrepentant believers who are under church discipline. While we are to associate and eat with fellow repentant believers as well as unbelievers, as Jesus did. So why not eat with them? What's going on there? First century Judaism, eating together was, was of paramount significance, Right? It connoted more than friendliness. It actually created social bonds. So when, when, when uh, Christians ate together, it reinforced and confirmed the solidarity established by their shared confession of faith in Christ. Refusing to eat with someone under church discipline broke all social ties, as well as exclude them from communion. So remember this guy, and understand this too, because this is hard for us to wrap our brains around here, but this guy couldn't go down the street and join, you know, Second Baptist Church of Corinth, okay? There was, there was no other church in town, right? This was it. There was no other, no other church for him to get into. And so the church of God in Corinth was the only option. So when they said, we're, we're not going to eat with you anymore, it literally is breaking social ties from the Christians altogether. And so we, sh- we should eat with and hang out with believers who are following Jesus and with unbelievers. But the professing believer is under church discipline. We are not to do so because we hope that this Separating them out will draw them to repentance. They will miss being part of the body. They'll miss following Jesus, right? This person was not acting like a believer and probably was not, uh, even, um, even though he was a member. And for the, church, for, the church, for the sake of the gospel, we need to protect the gospel from such hypocrisy, from those who name the name of Christ but drag his name through the dirt with how they live. Thus, church discipline helps keep the gospel from being discarded by unbelievers as worthless words that do nothing to transform somebody's life. It should be said of us, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, right? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. That should be our testimony. Such were some of you. This is heavy, right? This subject is a heavy subject, I understand. Where do we get the hope, the power, the encouragement to hold the rope for each other, to stay in the fight together, right? And, and, and yet get the gospel out into the world. And I told you earlier, as we go to communion here, that, that Jesus had transformed Passover into what we now call communion or the Lord's Supper. And in chapter 5, verse 8 here, it says that we are to celebrate this time together. Like, what does that mean? What are we celebrating? The night before Jesus was betrayed, he told his disciples to go prepare the Passover meal. And as they gathered that night, Jesus took the, the unleavened bread and he broke it, right? And what, what would traditionally happen the, the, during that time, they would say something along the lines of this, this is the bread of our affliction. They were talking about the Israel in the Old Testament that is broken for us. Our ancestors struggled in the wilderness that we might be free. That's what they would say. But instead, Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, what, this is my body that is broken for you, right? This is my affliction, which I will suffer, that you can be ultimately free. And then he took, in, and he took the cup of wine and he gave it to his disciples. And again, what tradition would be said at Passover was about the Exodus would be, quote, I will bring you out I will deliver you, I will redeem you, was the promise that was made as the juice was shared. But Jesus took the bread and said, this is the wine of my blood that will be poured out for you. I will bring you out, right? I will deliver you, I will redeem you. So Jesus was redefining Passover. 
But I've, I've mentioned this to you before, back when we studied the Gospel of John a few years back. You ever noticed that what was missing at that Last Supper meal before Jesus died on the cross? It was a Passover meal, so we told him to prepare. And Passover had three elements, three main elements. Bread, wine, and the main course, which was the lamb, right? So there's Jesus. He's breaking bread. He's passing it around. He's, he's, he's pouring out the wine. He's passing it around. Where's the lamb at? It's not mentioned anywhere in that passage. It's not anywhere. And I'm sure the disciples are asking the same question. They're like, Where, where's the main course? Like, we're hungry here. Where's the lamb? And the reason there was no lamb on the table was because why? Because the lamb was already at the table, right? He was already there. He, Jesus is called the lamb of God who, what, takes away the sin of the world? He was the lamb at the table. There wasn't one on the table because he was it. He was going to be sacrificed for us by going to a cross and dying for our sin in our stead so that we could be free, right? Free to what? Free from sin, but also free to love one another enough to be to, to step in each other's life, step in each other's kitchen, and actually begin to help each other and, be, and not be afraid of what people think about us. So as we go to communion, we examine ourselves, okay? There's bread, there's juice at the tables in the front and the back. If you're, you're a believer, you know Christ, you're, you're able to take a part of that. But we are to examine ourselves and ask the question, am I teachable? Am I pliable in the hands of God right now? Am I willing to do whatever God has told me to do? Am I willing to do that? Am I invested in other people's lives in this local church? If you're not a member, but you are a Christian, you may take as well. But listen, if you're unrepentant, if you're under church system from another church, we ask you do not take it. Right? This is all part of that process of loving you enough to bring you to repentance as well. If, you're, if you don't know Christ, it's not for you as well. We're going to have some time, some quiet time here. I'm going to stop talking. And, uh, and we have some moment to pray. Talk to God. That's what prayer is. Have some time to talk to God. Lay your heart out before him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that, uh, that you are the Lamb of God. It takes away the sin of the world. God, you offer freedom today to anyone in this room who does not know you. You offer freedom to be set free from the bondage um, of sin. The things that are destroying our lives and bringing destruction to those around us that we love. I pray, God, that you would um, open up eyes today to see you. I pray for those who maybe claim to be Christians today, that they're here in this room, that, God, they, they, um, they keep some rules. They go to church. They've been in church their whole life. They've been in and out of church their whole life. think they're a Christian by, by just being good people. And yet, God, you call us to repent. You call us to turn to you. You call us to rely upon you and you alone for salvation. May, God, we lay everything down before your feet. As we examine ourselves, God, may we be teachable, pliable, moldable in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.